Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Trans Questioning Podcast. I'm your host, Sarah Zedig. It is uh, 12.27 now, p.m. on July... Let's take a guess here. 5th? 7th? Woo-hoo-hoo-hoo! 7th. July 7th, 2022. Hello! Uh, my pronouns are she, her. Uh, I'm Sarah Zedig. I said that already. Hi! Welcome to another episode of the Trans Questioning Podcast. Uh, I am walking around my kitchen this afternoon. Uh, I woke up about two hours ago, been sleeping in the last few days, because I've been up late the last few days. It's been an eventful couple of weeks, and I think this episode is probably going to be a lot more like old trans questioning, because I actually got shit about, I actually got trans shit to talk about for once. Uh, yeah, so my girlfriend has COVID. Again, that sucks. So she's been isolating in our bedroom. I've been sleeping out here, uh, which is which is fine. I don't mind it at all. Uh, but we're 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 sort of isolating. I'm still testing negative. She tested positive like four days ago, and I've tested negative every day since. I, anywhere that she would have got it, I was there too. I don't know how she got it and I didn't, but I'm still testing negative. Uh, so we're isolating, which sucks. I don't like it. I don't like sharing a house with my girlfriend and kind of being nervous to like get close to her. Uh, but I also don't want to get sick again. I don't want to get COVID again. (laughs) Really don't want to get COVID again. Um, but Zoe's doing okay. She's taking it easy. We're, we're, we're taking it very seriously Which is not to say that we didn't take it seriously last time, but I think now that we've had COVID once, we're sort of like, all right, okay, I'm not going to play games with this shit. So she's being very careful not to exert herself too much and taking various allergy medicines. I am uh, taking care of things out here. I'm going to try to cook a recipe that my mom left me, sort of. My mom was a cook among many other things. And um, when my brother went off to college, when I was like four, maybe younger, she, um, she gave him a bunch of note cards with some really good basic uh, recipes that he could use uh, while he was in college to make simple meals that were really good. My sister-in-law, faxed me, or faxed me, Jesus Christ, I'm not that old, I don't know why, that was, that was a, that that was a, that was a mistake, she made a copy of those note cards for me and sent them to me when I went to college, so I have, I've, I've carried these, they're like full-size pieces of paper that have blurry note card printed onto them, that is like blown out, and so a lot of the words are, are illegible, and they're not like, lined up on the paper in any way that makes sense. So it's actually kind of hard to tell where one card starts and another card ends. If you're looking at like the sides that are on a single piece of paper, are they from the same card? We just don't know. So you kind of have to read them and, and translate them and hope that you've got it figured out. It doesn't help that this is like printed with like a, like a shitty college Canon printer in like 2010. 2009. I don't know. But I never really used any of these recipes, and I, I, I don't know why. 
Uh, I, don't, I don't know why I never did, but I still have them carried with me this whole time. And I'm gonna try one tonight for my girlfriend. And I do actually, like, I spend a lot of time cooking. I, I'm not like, I've, I, have, I have known people who don't know how to cook. So I know that I do know how to cook, but I don't think of myself as somebody who knows how to cook, if that makes any sense at all. I'm gonna share with you this recipe that my mom left her children. <clears throat> the recipe is for uh, shit on a shingle. So here's the recipe. Brown one pound of hamburger, spoon meat into a separate bowl, reserve cooked out grease. You need approximately two tablespoons of grease to make gravy. If there's not enough to take up four tablespoons of flour, add more grease, bacon grease, butter, or vegetable oil as a last resort. Heat the grease and stir in the flour. Let sizzle for a few minutes, scraping all the cooked on crud from the pan. You have now made roux. Get your whip ready and add one cup of milk or so. We'll thicken quickly. So have more, I have to turn the page over now. Have more milk ready to whisk in. Keep adding milk, approximately two cups total, till gravy is the right consistency. I'm sorry that I'm probably making lots of plosives because uh, I've got a hand recorder. I haven't really used this thing since like, in a really long time, actually. I can't remember the last time I used this thing because I wanted to use something that wasn't my phone. So I'm actually not sure where, uh, I, don't, I don't have like a, a pop screen on this thing. So I guess we're just gonna find out for ourselves. Uh, and you can tell me <laughs> on Twitter uh, how bad this episode sounds. Um, anyway, so two cups of total till the gravy is the right consistency. Let cook slowly and add seasonings, salt, pepper, garlic, uh, some Tabasco or anything else that sounds good. Why do you think it's called shit on a shingle? After gravy has cooked for a few minutes and you've got it tasting good, add in hamburger and reheat. Pour over cooked rice and chow. Uh, you can also use, you can also, you can make half the amount of gravy and use a can of cream of mushroom soup, whisk soup and gravy together and add milk to get the right consistency, then carry on. I used to make it this way all the time till I didn't have soup. All right, well, yeah, I'm gonna give that a shot tonight. Uh, we'll see if I'm any good at it. I do remember my mom making this and joking about it, you know, being called shit on a shingle. And I think I never made it because I, the name grossed me out. I was always that kind of kid where I was like, well, I don't wanna eat something called shit on a shingle. I don't wanna think about it. But now my girlfriend has a very similar sort of recipe that she breaks out relatively often. Does not involve gravy, though. Her recipe for something very similar is called Wimpy. But uh, I'm going give to this, give this recipe a shot. It's fairly simple. I'm probably going to cook some vegetables also. It's weird how many of my the recipes that I have in my head are sort of based on a world where ground beef was cheap and... Uh, plentiful, and um, I guess other vegetables weren't really a necessity, because <laughs> like the chili that, that that I know how to make, that was my mom's recipe, it was just like ground beef and vegetables, and st uh, uh, the, the typical vegetables, garlic and onion and stuff, but no like beans, no bell peppers or anything like that, so I've started adding 
stuff like that. And it turns out it's really good specifically because when you add more stuff to a meal, it leaves you with more stuff to eat later. This is called Leftovers. I don't know if you've known about this. I'm actually watching the HBO show The Leftovers right now. I just started it last night. It's a flawless transition. I didn't even plan that. That just happened. But I started watching The Leftovers, and I fucking love it. And I'm going to talk about it in a second, I guess, because it's on my mind. I'm just going wherever I'm going, baby. Yeah, Zoe has, has, has convinced me of the utility of, uh, of, of having copious leftovers. And the chili that I made a few nights ago that had like, it's almost, that was, that was almost a week ago, actually, that I made that. We still have a little bit of leftovers from that. That was a good, uh, that was a good batch. Added a bunch of beans to it. And it lasted a week <laughs> uh, in a way that it would not have done had I not added beans. Uh, so that's, that's my cooking lesson is just throw shit in. Add more stuff to the food until there's more of the food. Uh, beans are cheap. Rice is cheap. Get used to them. <laughs> get, get, cook them. Put, them. put them with crap. Make it all together. It's, it's good. You'll, you'll be happier as a result when you have food that is cheap that you can just sort of microwave and eat. Why am I, going on, why am I lecturing you about, about leftovers? What am I doing? <laughs> I don't know. I'm just bored. I'm pacing around in my kitchen. It is now 12.37. I'm still umming. I need to stop umming. I need to get back out of that habit. What have I been thinking about recently? Well, okay, I'll start with... Uh, we went to some Pride events two weekends ago. Yeah, that makes sense. Two weekends ago, we went to... We went to the Pride Parade... In downtown Seattle, we sat, went to a picnic with uh, some friends of ours, a bunch of trans people, went to a picnic and sat down uh, on, in the shadow of the Space Needle, which I, this is the closest I'd ever been to it. And it's a pretty cool, it's a pretty cool little needle. It's a pretty cool building. It's, I don't know, being up close to it, I'm like, man, this is, this is like a cool, this is... I kind of I kind of buy the space age aesthetic. There's a part of me that sort of looks at it and, and wishes that we had gone that route. Futurist modernism, modernist futurism. I don't fucking know. Anyway, um, we did that. Uh, we didn't really like go into the parade or anything because that's a lot of people, a lot of loud people. Not all of them wearing masks. Though there were a lot of people wearing masks. So we just sat, we, we, we tried to be as safe as we could, so we sat at, at, the, um, at the picnic with our friends. It was really nice. It was a nice day. It got, got, got wicked cross-faded and just vibed all day, took a nap out there. It was the perfect temperature. We were in the shade the whole time. And we were just talking to, to our queer friends. And, you know, I haven't spent a lot of time out in the world, you know, I've only been out of the closet for four years, three, four, four years, four years now, um, and I spent a lot of that time so far in Oklahoma, where I never really went out as myself, 
And here, I've spent most of my time, except for the last few, until I moved into the place where I am now, spent all that time in the fucking suburbs with no access to, like, Seattle. <laughs> so now I'm, I'm, I'm here, I'm close to transit, so I'm, I can get, like, pretty much anywhere, which is really weird. It's, it's cool to live in a place with public transit because you wind up being able to just go to places. I'm still trying to get that through my head, that I can jump on a bus and wind up outside of, of, of an indie movie theater playing a movie that came out in a different millennium uh, in like half an hour. That's pretty cool. I've never had that in my life before. Um, it's too fucking bad. It's, it's too fucking bad. It's too fucking bad about COVID. It's too fucking bad about COVID, though, is the thing. Because every single time I'm like, well, I kind of want to, I want to do stuff. I can't just live my life living in my broom all the time. And then we go out and we get fucking COVID. <sighs> anyway, um, this is the thing, is that we have been, this entire time, you know, we've already got COVID once. We don't want to get it again. We've been trying to be as careful as possible. <sighs> um, but while I was at, at the Pride Parade, this is what was... How do I talk about this? Because it's so weird. I found myself ogling a lot of women while I was out there, particularly trans women. Whenever they walked by, there were trans women walking by who didn't have, like, shirts or bras on. They were just walking around tits out. That was pretty cool. That was interesting. Um... And I, uh, 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 the two nights prior, I also went to a, um, a, a, a pride event at a, at a bar. It was an outdoor event, and there weren't a ton of people. I just needed to go. I, I needed, needed to go out and be around people, and they, they, they checked shit on the way in, whatever, you know. It's weird, like, talking about doing things, like going out and doing things that were fun, that involved interacting with other people, feels to me like admitting that I sinned and I'm having to sit here like justify it. Like, well, but we, you know, we tried, I tried. I think maybe the, the sort of societal model of blaming every individual person for their choice to go outside ever, it, it maybe isn't working. Maybe that's not the best way to go about this because we have sort of been forced at gunpoint to go out into the world. Like, the government isn't gonna just start acknowledging that COVID matters again. They're, we're not gonna do any lockdowns. We're not gonna do any mask mandates or vaccination mandates. We're not gonna pay people to stay home, do anything that might actually work to help people. We're just gonna let it rip and let millions of people die uh, forever now. But, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm a bad person because it was pride and I wanted to go out and, and be around other trans people. Uh, and I don't have COVID. I don't... <laughs> my girlfriend has COVID. <laughs> Man, this sucks. This fucking sucks. This whole... The whole... I'm, I'm, I was trying to talk about something good that was related to trans shit, but now I'm just on a tear about the Democrats again. Fucking... This is what the entire Biden strategy of, the, of COVID-19 is about, is pushing off the guilt of 
mass death onto every single individual person so that no politician feels guilty at all and is very strictly not culpable for any of the of the tor horrible shit that has happened as a result. Um, it's a very insidious process. But all of that aside, I did go out and uh, have a nice time. And it was this explicit, like, look at all these, look at all these adult women walking around in their, like, their most attractive clothes. I was wearing mine. I was out, like, just in a bra and uh, feeling, feeling very bold about that because I'm still very ashamed of my body in a lot of ways. And so just going out, uh, I had a shirt, like I had a button-up shirt, but I took it off at a certain point when it was getting hot. Um, so it was just my bra, and that was like, oh, wow. Oh, my God. People can see that I have tits, sort of. Um, and then catching people ogling me was wild. But I, it, it was weird to be in a social setting where it's like, it is expected that if you are here, you are an adult queer person, and and everybody there is sort of aware of like like it's pride. It's it's we're there for each other to an extent. We're there to take pride in the fact that we are who we are, and just being in a social space where I felt like I had permission to look at and appreciate other people's bodies did something to my brain. I, there were, there were, oh God, there were, there were, there were go-go dancers on stage. Uh, this was an outdoor event. There were go-go dancers on stage and uh, one, one of my, my, my friend who uh, asked us to come out uh, to, to, to hang out at this event um, gave me and my girlfriend uh, singles, some, some, some dollars to, uh, to, to place respectfully within the, the bands of the uh, go-go dancers lingerie. And so we did that, walked up to this little, little fence and waved money at them, and they came up, and we put the money in, and then they walked away. And it was just sort of like, it's, it's, it's got me thinking a lot of thoughts about my relationship to sexuality, because for the longest time, I felt like expressing any carnal desire in any, in any space, public or private, was virtually identical to committing an act of sexual predation. Um, expressing to another person, or even admitting to myself, that, 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 that I was attracted to them in, in any way, or that I just admired the shape of their body. That, to me, is like, oh, that's creep behavior. That's really suspect. That's the sort of thing that somebody who is going to be a serial killer... You know, it just, like... Maybe maybe I I took too much of my sense of self from pop culture. Maybe this is just sort of the hazard of 
media landscape that has no central vision of personal values. It's all just the whims of random writers who have grudges that they want to carry out. Uh, to that point, last night I was walking around here recording random thoughts and I was messing around on guitar and I recorded a song. I actually recorded a song. It was a silly, dumb little song. I, I, whatever. It was fun. I might play it here. <laughs> I have no idea what this is. All right. Afterwards, I, I found myself thinking, you know, the way that I write, like, stories, like Godfeels, or, or even, even my scripts, is I, I, get, I get these bits and pieces of scenes or arguments or details or whatever that, uh, you know, they feel right to me in the moment. So I sit down and I, and I write them out, and sometimes I write a whole thing. Most of the time it is a fragment, like a paragraph fragment or a sentence fragment that just sort of is a signal to future me at the sort of like, I'm planting a flag in the, in the location and idea space where I found that particular idea so that I can come back there down the road and sort of see it and, and flesh it out, you know? But this is so much harder with scripts than it is with fiction because my, my, it's harder for me to 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 put all the pieces together with a with a script with with a with a, a an argument because it's there the, the this there's so much more room for every single thought that pops into your head and yet there's absolutely not enough room for it to all go in to the finished product and I find that the structure of an argument is is not as flexible as what you can do with fiction because an argument is persuasive, whereas a fiction isn't persuasive in its narrative construction, at least not like in, in on the surface. It, it 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 rather than being an attempt to persuade you. It starts by you with the assumption that you have already been persuaded, uh, and that's sort of the difference for me is that I struggle knowing how to convince people to come along with me as my ideas sort of continue to evolve in these weird ways, um, like I'm still trying to write about tunic. It's just this last section. every time I open the script, I look at it and I think, ah, oh, the beginning. 
I really need to rewrite it because it's it's it makes no sense anymore because uh, I wrote it like immediately after finishing the game and so it's like talking about March as if it's now and I, I don't know I don't know I'm still I'm still figuring that out but anyway 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 I recorded some thoughts last night I was just walking around pacing the kitchen like I am right now and I realized, like, this is th- this sort of thing where instead of uh, sitting down and trying to write it all out and getting lost in, in, in the sort of impossibility of seeing everything in one place, I really liked sort of recording thoughts as they came to me and, and imperfectly voicing them and giving myself the chance to just say out loud whatever was going through my head while recording it reformulating the sentence, kind of finding... I, I, I wrote some stuff, or I, I said some stuff, about the video that I'm working on about Lost. Uh, and I'm, I'm watching The Leftovers in connection with that. I'm just bringing that back up to remind you that I'm going to talk about it a little bit more in a minute. But I realized that walking around and just sort of recording fragments of my thoughts like this works way better for my brain... Like this is how I did the, the 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 transitioning video, where that was mostly unscripted. That was just me sitting in front of a camera and talking my thoughts out, and then piecing it together after the fact. The thing is that that way of doing things is so much work. That's and that's part of why I've always kind of stepped, talked myself back from that ledge. But there's something I realized last night. Like all of that aside, just recording my thoughts like this helps me to figure out what I want to say and capture those thoughts and ideas in the moment in a way that, that, that agrees with my brain and better than just you know writing them down in a doc, obviously. So I was trying to figure out why I don't do this thing that really agrees with the way that my brain works. And I realized that it really just comes down to the fact that there's like, there was like an episode of Family Guy or Rick and Morty, or Futurama, or some shit, where there's like a, a an episode where there's a writer as a character, and he's there at this party that's like a grill, like a like a barbecue, and and every scene that he's in, he's got a little handheld like cassette recorder or whatever, and is you know, in the middle of conversation is like, ooh, idea. Man walks into bar, says, give me a drink. And woman says, what are you having? You know, just like, like dumb, inane bullshit. I've always been so sensitive to stereotypes, I guess. I have, I have like an existentially negative reaction to doing the same thing twice. There is, there's very little that will uh, turn a screw painfully in my brain than asking me to repeat myself, which is very unfair. It, it's, it's just sort of like a, a gut reaction that I, I try not to let control me. <laughs> and I, it, it just in my own writing and everything that I do, I always try to change things up constantly. I don't like to do the same thing twice. And so when I was younger, for, for the longest time, what I wanted to be more than anything was a writer. And there were all these stereotypes about, about writers. And I just, you know, there were so many things that I didn't want to be, you know, I didn't want to be the kind of writer who's like full of himself and goes out and, 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 you know, gets drunk and makes a scene. 
of course, all the stereotypes about writers are masculine stereotypes. Um, and, and, and one of those stereotypes that did come up in like more than one media, piece of media somehow is the idea of the writer who's so full of, full of themselves just sort of like walking around a party, you know, recording their thoughts, their, their, their inane little thoughts in a recorder. Like, ooh, what if there was a, what if there was a, 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 a romantic comedy where the guy, he's a dragon and the woman is a woman. <laughs> and I just, it's, uh, that shit did something to me. And I'm not, I'm not trying to, like, make a, I don't know, a, a cry point. A cry point? A cry point? What the fuck does that mean, Sarah? A cry point? Like, like an emotional argument? Is that what you're saying? I'm not trying to make a persecutorial argument here, like, oh, woe is me, culture put me down, or whatever, but... I do think that it's notable that a lot of people seem to have impressions of culture that just sort of filtered down out of sitcoms and it it just it just hit me last night some writer on a cartoon show went to like a rap party or a barbecue that some producer was holding and there was one guy there once who is walking around with a recorder going like, ooh, fun idea. And this, and this one writer saw this guy one time and was so annoyed by him that he put that character into a shitty little cartoon. So now I have this neurosis where if I deign to record my thoughts on the degenerate medium of an audio field recorder, as opposed to the enlightened word processor on my computer, uh, like the act of having to filter my thoughts through the sieve of my hands and the keyboard and, and the written word and my, my authorial voice versus filtering them through the sieve of my literal voice, like somehow, you know, that is, is the worst, one of the worst things that you could do, like walking around in my own home with nobody to hear, with, a, with, a, with an audio recorder in my hand, like I am doing at this exact moment. Doing that in the privacy of, of my own life, somehow that still made me like a bad person. Like I couldn't let myself do it even when I was alone because I thought like, this is what, this is, this is what bad writers do. This is what hacks do. And I'm not a hack, damn it. I'm not gonna be like those other writers. And even though I've long since shed any like real care for what people think like i'm 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 an autistic plural transgender furry who makes youtube videos and podcasts no one is ever going to respect me and i'm okay with that because i don't respect them either i don't know I, I i this stuff still sticks with you even though i i don't I don't like care actively intellectually i know i see what's happened but deep down, there's still a part of me that believes that. It's just a habit. It's a behavioral, cultural habit that I now have that I just think, like, this particular activity is associated with assholes. And, and there's just so much stuff like that that kept me away from doing things that I wanted to do 
throughout my life where you see people playing guitar at parties, right? And that's this obnoxious thing. Or just playing guitar in general. I don't know. Acoustic guitar. So much of like our culture, actually, now that I think about it, is just guys in, in, in L.A., who encountered somebody who annoyed them once and they decided to make it everybody's problem. Our entire culture is like, what if we made fun of this type of guy? What if we made fun of this type of guy? Just over and over and over and over again until every single type of guy is made to feel bad for doing things that they just sort of do. I don't know if I'm making a point. I don't know if I am making an argument for, I don't know, the mass scale execution of Hollywood writers. Maybe I am. Nobody can say for sure. <laughs> but I, I just, it just, it's just interesting to me. And I don't know the extent to which this is an avoidable process because, you know, we write about our lives. We talk about what we experience and fiction is a means of processing our experiences, and if you're annoyed by somebody and you want to write about them in a story, I mean, that happens, right? I guess it's always the question of how do you do that in a way that doesn't turn the people that you're writing about into punching bags? And that's the thing that I feel like so many writers, and, and, and it doesn't even really need to be writers, just people, just in general, it seems like they're they're perfectly willing to throw entire groups of people under the bus uh, because one person did one thing that they disliked once. And I think that comes down to a, a sort of lack of cultural education where we are taught that the only thing that matters is is whether or not you're rude. And so if somebody does something that is like that seems kind of rude, like you know, I don't know, doing something that interrupts your own particular flow at a group setting. Uh, and I'm not saying that, that it is like bad to be annoyed by somebody at a party or, or that, that, that some people don't deserve a little bit of ridicule. Like, I'm not saying that. I'm not trying to throw a hissy fit here or make this into like a, 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 an issue. I just think it's interesting. And circling back around to my point about pride, I think that there is a similar sort of thing going on there where I internalized so many ideas about what men are and what men, what makes men toxic. I was surrounded by, I, I, my, my, the immediate example that jumps to my head is that I was obsessed with werewolves in high school and I was really annoyed by the fact that there did not exist a werewolf movie or book, as far as I could tell, that really got at what I found interesting about them conceptually. Like, I always saw werewolves as, as being much more spiritual and, and almost religious in, in their function and connection to society and, and the moon and each other. Of course, now looking back on a lot of the werewolf stories I wrote when I was in high school, I can see that they were uh, very much <laughs> attempts at a closeted queer person to imagine a queer community that would accept me. But I was very annoyed at the time that every, every werewolf story 
that had an, an, any amount of, of popularity is about like the the revealing the evil inner animal behind behind man. Like to be a werewolf is to unleash the monster within. And and to me, I always felt like the monster is already here. The monster is people. And my desire to be to to like turn into a wolf has nothing to do with my desire to like rip people's throats out. If it if it does, it is it is an inverse relationship. I want to be able to turn into a wolf and run off into the woods because that means that I get to just exist in the woods and not give a shit about Twitter trends or or have to deal with some guy dead naming me. I can just be a wolf in the woods. It doesn't have to be more complicated than that. And yes, maybe sometimes there's violence. You know, life is violence, whatever. But it just it, it it's one of those things that I. I always been really sensitive to trends and patterns, and so when it when it became clear to me, I, well, I just I couldn't I couldn't not internalize how everything all all these TV shows, all these movies, games, books, everything sort of added up to this portrait of masculinity that sort of said that it is inherent to being a man, that you want to have sex with every woman you see, uh, except for the unattractive ones who are subhuman, uh, and that denying that you want to have sex with everybody that you see is um, sort of like a repression of your natural instincts, and that you are destined to at some point explode and hurt the people around you, and that uh, there is just no way to get around the fact that to be a man is to be a toxic, sort of horribly destructive force on the people around you, sooner or later, no matter how hard you try. And so I dedicated myself to not being that, and the result was that I basically forced myself into, like, I, I guess I was a Volcel, technically? Jesus Christ. I didn't have anything to do with that, but I, but I did, like, I had a relationship in high school that I was really, uh, uh, that, that, that went south, that I was obsessed with for way too long, like a couple of years, I was... I was sort of an embarrassing, this was in high school, I was an embarrassing, like, lovesick loser. Um, uh, and then that sort of dragged me down for years, and eventually at some point in college I just decided, like, I'm clearly not ready for any relationships. I need to just stop trying for a while and stop letting myself think about relationships. And that was actually a really healthy choice, to to, to stop obsessing about whether or not I was going to find the right person or whatever. Ultimately, that led to a lot of introspection that helped me slowly, slowly, slowly realize that I was queer. Uh, if only I had been around more queer people, I might have realized this shit sooner. But to, to bring that to the point, while I was at this, this pride event, these pride events, while I was at this... Um, uh, this this bar event thing in the street, and while I was at the parade doing the picnic, 
there was just something contextually where I knew, okay, this is a place where people are deliberately putting their bodies on display if, if we're going to put it in, I guess, gross mechanical terms. People are putting their bodies on display deliberately with the expectation that they're going to be looked at and that they want to be looked at. And that the whole point is, look at us. Aren't we hot? Aren't we cool? We're here. And that's awesome. And just being in that context and also having the context of me, myself, being a trans woman uh, who is in uh, several very good relationships, I, I, I just... I was able to let myself see the attractiveness in other people for for the first time, really. Like I was just watched watching people be like, oh man, oh man, she's hot. Ah, oh, oh that guy, that guy's top surgery scars are those are that's that's cute. Like there's just there's just something about like seeing all these trans people walking around like completely unafraid to to be noticed for who they are and it suddenly it's like I was allowed to to feel attraction to them and I still this is what's insane is that I'm I, I still just talking about this I feel like I'm admitting to something like I'm admitting to a crime and I'm imagining some fucking turf going through the archives of this podcast and finding this episode and being like ah aha here don't you see she says that she sees everybody around her as a piece of meat and she's just in it for the I don't fucking know I who cares what a turf says it's just it's just it's just impossible sometimes to not con, I I can't not think about what my enemies will think about anything that I say or do and when I say my enemies I generally just mean like turfs and weird puritanical redditors um but I also mean just people working in bad faith and I don't know, I try not to let that, that kind of thought process dictate my entire, the entire course of my life, but I think it, it does help to be aware of the implications of the things that one might say. I think it's naive at this point to sort of assume, oh, well, I'm just some some random asshole who nobody is ever going to care about. I can say whatever I want. I, I think that it, it's sort of naive to assume that anything anybody says at any point now that, that, that there is a record of uh, won't at some point be used against you by, by a really bad faith group of people. I just think that that's kind of foolish by now. But I don't know. I... I, I wanted to talk about it on this show, and I, and I and I still don't really know exactly where to go with the thought. It's just I don't think I really appreciated the extent to which my own sexuality and my permission to to, to feel attraction to other people was connected to this sense I had that attraction itself was a problem, was like a signal of, of the fact that I was doing something wrong, that I wasn't in control of myself, and that I was liable to, to, to I don't know, do something terrible. And this is, this is, a, this is 
you know, I've struggled with intrusive thoughts for a long time. There's a there's a, a fun little thing going on on Twitter. I haven't been spending very much time on Twitter recently, and I think that's to everybody's benefit. Uh, but I did see some folks talking about some some Republicans talking about like, oh well, at least my toxically masculine son only killed himself and not didn't take other people with him, or at least he only got COVID and, and whatever. Like people saying like, oh, it, it's better. It, it it is a it is a better and more loving thing to um, to kill your psychopathic sons than to let them go on to inevitably kill other people in their own suicide. I used to fantasize about being a school shooter when I was in high school, and that thought scared me. I used to, here we go. See, remember earlier when I was like, I'm fantasizing about, or not fantasizing, I'm imagining some turf going through this and finding this as proof. Here's one of those things that I'm always afraid to talk about for exactly that reason. I, I struggled with intrusive thoughts for a long time. To an extent, I still do, but I've just gotten really good at managing them. Um, but when I was in high school, uh, you know, people just sort of, I just had the vibe. Everybody thought that I was going to, I was inevitably going to be like somebody who committed violence because I was awkward and uh, repressed and uh, didn't really know how to deal with my own emotions and didn't, didn't know how to deal with other people because I moved around a lot as a kid. I just didn't have the social connections that other people did. I was sort of, my adolescence was socialized very strangely. I used to fall down these like, I actually have a bunch of my old notebooks where I, I wrote a lot of these thoughts down where I would just, you know, there would be a day where I'd get bullied and I would just imagine what you would imagine. And as I was doing so, as I was, like, thinking about, like, I, you know, it's, it's, it's just it's so strange because I say, you know, I fantasized about being a school shooter. I... When I, I fantasize, it's sort of, it's not quite the right word because it was more like I was mad and I wanted to do something that would force the people around me to acknowledge the fact that something was fucked up in me and something was fucked up in the world around us. And, and, and that was the only thing that I could imagine that would get through to people, that would break through the, 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 the mask of ignorance that everybody was wearing on the fact that this, just the whole house of cards is just imbalanced and falling, already has fallen over, and we're just pretending it hasn't. And, and even then, I was like, I don't want to, I don't, I, I, I don't want this to be who I am. I don't want to become this person. I don't want to be this angry, violent kid. I don't, I don't want to prove everybody who thinks I'm a violent person correct. But the thought kept happening anyway. And I, by some miracle, I, instead of taking that to mean that I was, you know, possessed by demons or, or hearing voices or fucking whatever, I just, I, I, I accepted that I just have these intrusive thoughts, but the thoughts themselves don't matter because they just exist in space. They're just, they're just there, 
And what really matters, what, what affects the world, is what you do. It doesn't matter if, if you have these intrusive thoughts about hurting people or hurting yourself, if you don't do them, if you don't act on them. After our cat Ruthie died, I wrote a piece uh, on, on Medium about my history with cats dying, and I wrote a little bit about how... God, I really am just going to get into this, huh? Um, I wrote a little bit about like my, my, my history with not liking cats, and, and, and how that sort of like bounced back and forth over the years. One of my least favorite tropes as a kid, uh, just, just in general in culture, is the sociopath child who hurts animals and therefore has no empathy and is, is definitely a serial killer. And they're less than human and they deserve to die. Like they're, they're, they're just doomed. They're, there's something broken in their brain and they can't, ever hope to have any connection with people. There's no way that they could ever interact with society in a healthy way. They're just busted. It's such an extraordinarily unempathetic perspective to take. And it is a refusal to acknowledge the fact that there are things that we simply don't know we have to be taught and to act as though society as a whole is and must be unspoken in order to function. If we are to acknowledge that there are things like morality, like empathy, that are not purely automatic, but do in a sense need to be taught in order for them to be instrumentalized in any way, if we were to acknowledge that, then that would threaten so many other things because so much of our liberal worldview relies on our sort of acceptance that, oh, this is just the way things are. You know, this is how capitalism works and capitalism is fine. You know, you cite all the, the numbers about why police are bad and then where, that, where do you end up with that? Well, what are we gonna do, not have police? <laughs> and, and, and we say that as if police are like rocks or water. We, we say that as if they were, like, like we, we learned how to say words, and the first words we said were, get him, officer. Like, that's not, <laughs> I think maybe we as a species, when we get into a sense of normalcy, we tend to think of that as like, this is, this is, this is our web that we have built, this is the way things are, and then when things come to interrupt that, it's very easy to uh, get scared and get angry and get violent. This is all sort of beside the point. But it just comes down to, for me, that there's, there's so many, so much of my adulthood now, I'm 33, so much of the process of coming out and transitioning has been a process of looking at all of the ways that I felt terrible as a teenager and, and all of the things that I learned in order to function in society and realizing that I was right. <laughs> I was kind of right in a lot of ways when I was a teen in the sense that none of this shit makes any sense. None of this shit works for people. It's all just, it's, it's all just bureaucratic bullshit that we pile on to a reality that makes no sense in order to make sense of it. And we do it because this is how things have been done. And... 
And when something crops up that doesn't agree with our view of reality, if we are, we can't like quantify our morals, we can't actually say what we stand for, what we believe in, because if we start doing anything or saying anything that creates a sense of values that actually require action, if we are about more than just the freedom to possibly do anything, but are specifically about the necessity of doing many things, then, then we have to admit that we can't just let people die all the time. We can't, we have to admit that, that society, in order for all of us to have a place to live where we're accepted, we have, we have to realize and internalize that there are people who are born, who just don't understand why things work the way that they do. And that does not give the rest of society that just so happens to fit into the generalized idea of normal, that doesn't give them permission to cast that person aside and say, oh, you're dangerous, oh, you're weird, you're a freak, you don't deserve a place in this world. The idea that there are kids out there who are so interminably broken that they are destined to be serial killers, they're destined to be mass shooters, and therefore it's better to let them kill themselves or to kill them yourself, than like a better and more loving thing to do that than, than it is to let them labor on in any sort of ignorance of that fact, only to inevitably take other people out on their own way out. It's similar in a lot of ways to how we refuse to re-evaluate our idea of gender and gender roles in the midst of this, the, the, the rise of transgenderism, if you want to be, um, you want to be sensational about it. Really what it just comes down to is that we want to believe that there are things that are inherent to human beings that we don't need to talk about, we don't need to analyze or discuss at length, except in like the halls of academia, except in like philosophical circles or academic circles. But that stuff is big brain garbage that has no actual application to reality, and there are just certain things that are inherent to human beings and that's okay, we just never have to think about them or talk about them. And then when somebody comes around and does something that is that violates whatever these inherent facts of humanity are, we can then just sort of throw them into the meat grinder conveniently without ever having to question our own ideas of how the world works. Like this, is just, this is just how society functions, is we create an in-group, and then the out-group emerges as a natural result, and then the out-group is the blood that greases the wheels of the engine that gives us the money we need to survive. I don't know if I have like a greater point there. It's just, this is just stuff that's been on my mind, and it's just so frustrating. Like, it felt so good to, to be in a place surrounded by queer people as a queer person, and be able to look at other people's bodies and just you know admire them, admire them for how pretty they are, and especially looking at trans people and, and see how they have, how how they have changed their bodies 
through surgery and through through hormones, and just just realizing this is this is, this is so beautiful. This is so cool, and we're all just here in this place together, and 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 we exist, and we're hot, and and that's awesome. It was like transcendent. I finally giving myself permission to look at another person who I don't know and and just be like, wow, you're really hot. That's cool. The thing is that it, 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 was, it was absolutely harmless. It's like I was trained to believe that anything that happens in the mind is more impactful than anything that happens in the real world. The sin is not the act. The sin is thinking about the act. Because if you commit the act, you're already too far gone. It's the thought, the, the, the crossing the intellectual boundary that is the real original sin, the, the, the thing that needs to be attacked. I guess I'll end it by saying that we all have things that we do because we were taught to do them. And generally speaking, I think that it is healthier to look at the state of affairs in this country right now with, with, with the perspective of people aren't behaving in this way because they are bad. They're, they're doing this because it's what they were taught. People are treating the pandemic the way that they are because that's how they were taught. They're doing what they were told. They've been taught to expect the authorities to know what they're doing, and they've been taught to... There's just... There's no alternative. We've just been forced into this position, and I think there's just a lot of that all over the place, where it's just people who have been taught... They're just people who are just doing what they're told in all these different ways that intersect and complicate each other until you, you wake up and have society. I don't think we really appreciate the extent to which media, to, to, to which popular popcorn media contributes to what we're told, is what we're told. We get our sense of normalcy and, and our, our sort of like personal vernacular from, from television, from movies and games and everything. And I think it's very easy to feel like there is this norm that is hanging around your neck like a noose. And I believe that a softer world where these things are not punished, but understood and talked about and not made to be frightening, I, 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 I believe that that world is possible. Hey everybody, it is 12.51 a.m. July 7th, 8th now, technically. I'm high right now, so forgive me if I am incoherent, but I broke this recorder out because I was having some thoughts about the meal that I cooked and wanted to share them here because... Earlier, I mentioned the recipe that I got from my mom that I was going to do for this. Um, she called it shit on a shingle. I cooked it tonight, and it's funny. I was always so intimidated by it because I didn't understand what my mom was doing when she cooked it. 
Like I watched her do it a million times. It was very strange going through the steps of cooking this particular meal, which once I tasted it, reminded me of like a million weird childhood adolescent memories of, of, well, weird is a weird word choice, but memories of eating basically that exact meal. I didn't quite get the flavor right. So I cooked a pound and a half of this ground beef. I browned it and uh, scooped it off into a bowl on the side. Uh, but I also cut up the better part of an onion into pretty decent sized chunks because I wanted there to be more mass to this than just beef. Uh, and I wasn't sure what else that I could put in there that wouldn't conflict with the gravy that I knew I was going to make. Anyway, I made gravy. I've never made gravy before uh, on my own recognizance. And it was sort of remarkably easy, which is, is just so funny because, I, I, again, I watched my mom do this a million times. And I, was, I never did it myself because I was just like, well, that's so interesting. I don't understand this at all. And, and, and it just like, just going through the steps is sort of like contextualizing, oh, this is that, that this was this part. And there's no magic to it. There's no like, because I always thought that there were, when, when, when somebody who's cooked most of their life cooks, they do it with such immediate confidence that it feels like every motion is like a brush stroke in a painting. And you look at that as a, as, a, as a definitely neurotypical kid, and you think like, oh man, there's no way I could ever do anything like that. They get so cool how you just know exactly what to do, and I'm just sort of hesitating and whatever. I want to do it right. I don't know how to do it right, and you do it so effortlessly. And I, I, I never, I guess I still don't really know that cooking is just like anything else. It's not really, the, the system is not absolute. It is just taught as absolute rather foolishly. Okay, I'm high. I'm getting off into a weird little fucking offshoot tangent here. Pacing around in circles in the kitchen. This has become a, an enjoyable outlet for me. It is 1 a.m. and I need to go to bed. But cooking, cooking this particular meal, besides just remembering things, you know, re just remembering just the flavor profile, the texture of it, and just remember eating it when I was in high school, watching TV at our, you know, this big CRT and a long couch and a big recliner. My mom would sit in the recliner and I'd be like spread out on the couch. I don't know how often we watch stuff together. I feel like that was a rarity. Anyway, it just brought back a lot of memories of, of eating shit on a shingle. <laughs> Besides that, I feel like I'm learning something about my mom because I, I have always thought of her as like, oh, she's a cook. She's she's a really good cook, uh, and and everybody loves her cooking. Everybody that ever knew her who expresses some grief to me says, oh, sure, her, her cooking was so good. I don't even remember what her. She made good cakes. She was known for making good cakes, but now I'm trying to understand that my, the, the sorts of meals that I think of as signature meals are not neutral in their signatoriness, in their signatory, signatoric stature. Basically, I'm having the privileged white center of the world revelation that my upbringing is not universal. 
but this is the, the the act of growing up that we all perform our entire lives I think is just sort of realizing slowly just how many things that you believe are true simply because other people in your vicinity seemed to believe that they were true and now here I am 33 years old cooking my mom's shit on a shingle recipe and I mentioned earlier about our chili recipe I think that we that it didn't have beans in it and I was thinking in this like I need to thicken this up uh with something and, and I was just sort of like you know it made a lot of food but it seemed like you know a pound and a half of ground beef for that much of uh leftovers it seemed like you know it for that cost, you could probably get more in there somehow to kind of elongate the value of the meal. And I realized that like between the chili and that and, and elsewhere, I think I kind of pieced together a little sociological picture of a particular moment in time and place when meat was plentiful and I don't want to go overboard here. I'm not trying to paint a fairy tale picture. But the idea of what a staple is just in the foundation of these recipes, it feels to me like it's just it's just interesting how much of it is meat and grease and flour and onions cut in mostly as as uh, I don't know what the terminology would be. I don't know. I feel like there's a difference between when an onion is like you are eating an onion in a dish versus this dish has onion in it. You know, there's like a difference between finely diced onion and onion slivers. I don't know what the difference between those two things is, but uh, I always felt like onion in these recipes was, was always sort of like dice it fine and it sort of disappears into the mix. I guess what it really, what it really signified to me is like a time when meat was cheaper and this amount that I got out of what I cooked that was considered a lot that was considered a lot what I got out of it that I was thinking was a little bit thin for the cost of what the the individual ingredients and that's on that's actually a thought that I've had about my mom's chili recipe once I realized that it wasn't a sin to put beans in them <laughs> It's so I, I I put these in such dramatic terms. It's really not that dramatic. I just was very stubborn about it for a long time because I don't know. It's how my mom did it, and my mom did everything right. It's so bizarre to 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 just have this visceral, sudden understanding of a so a massive socioeconomic shift within your own lifetime. The, this recipe that once produced a lot now doesn't produce enough, even though the quantity is the same. I feel like there is, there is, there is something super structurally economic about that. And I'm sure that there were, uh, if this were, or this were, if I were working this out on Twitter, I'm sure somebody would jump in with the name of a theorist who has uh, elaborated uh, at length on these thoughts and I would very politely put it in the list of things that I need to read <laughs> anyway 
Yeah. I just wanted to talk this out a bit because I, I, I don't know. Uh, I wasn't sure if I would remember <laughs> this, this string of thoughts tomorrow. I very often have long chains of thoughts as I'm wandering around, partaking of Black Phillips parsley. I'm, I'm still workshopping it. I'm trying to make the devil's lettuce but for goats. I'm workshopping it. We'll get there, everybody. <laughs> anyway, I think food is good. That's what I think. I'm glad I cooked this recipe. I feel like I learned something about my mom in the process. And I think that I am going to try to cook some of these other recipes and see if they have any other life lessons to teach me. <laughs> ah, Christ. Turning, turning my life into my own little Disney cartoon movie. Finding the spirit of my parents through these clues that were left behind. Ah, man. That's a fun thing to find yourself fantasizing about. Ah, jeez. I'm gonna, I'm gonna sign off before this gets any, any more depressing. I'm glad I cooked that meal. It was a good meal. Zoe liked it. Zoe agreed with me that it needed something. But it was eminently edible. Zoe's gonna be mad at me for quoting her here. And I know I'm misquoting her. So throw me under the bus on that one. But she said of, of my shit on a shingle, you make a damn fine chili. And this is good too. Maybe I'm not misquoting her. I think that's actually a direct quote. Now that I'm reflecting backwards on, on the, the conversation. Mm. Anyway, I guess that's going to do it for this episode of the Trans Questioning Podcast. I've been your host, Sarah Zedig. You can find me on Twitter at HMSNoFun. And you can support me if you like the work that I'm doing on patreon.com slash ltas or on camaraderie.co slash sarazetig or code-fi.com slash sarazetig yeah those are places where you can give me money uh the music is by molly noise the cover art is by dear witch thank you so much for listening and i will see you again in the future take care of yourselves